Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the UK weekly true crime podcast. I'm Adam. Today we head back to October 2008. So let's take a look at what was in the UK charts at this time. Number one was Pink with So What? And Kings of Leon with Sex on Fire was number four. Such an underplayed song, don't you think? For me, Kings of Leon or Elbow are two bands I always avoid at any festival. But hey, maybe I'm missing the point. Ladies ruled this month with Britney Spears at number one in the US with Womanizer. So what do you think this week? A decent couple of number ones? This was the month when OJ Simpson was finally found guilty of kidnapping and armed robbery. Quantum of Solace, the 22nd James Bond film, premiered in London. And if you remember, we were in uncharted financial times with everything crashing around us. On October the 3rd, the 700 billion bailout bill for the US financial system was signed by President George W. Bush. And on October the 24th, Bloody Friday, saw many of the world's stock exchanges experiencing their worst declines in their history, with drops of around 10% on most indices. In today's case, we head to Pontypool, South Wales. Pontypool is a town of approximately 35,000 people, located around 20 miles northeast of Cardiff. One of the earliest industrial towns in Wales, Pontypool home to, among others, leading politician of the last century, Roy Jenkins. <laughs> I'm sorry, I think that is possibly the most boring fact I've ever shared. Goodness gracious, I think I'll move on. The witnesses were shocked. This isn't the sort of thing that happens on a business park at New Inn near Pontypool, South Wales, on a Monday morning. One witness said, At 9am we heard shouting. Then we smelt petrol and went next door. We couldn't believe what we found. The staff were tied up. One of the men was obviously dead. Another had been hit with a ratchet. So bad I thought he was dead as well. The place was on fire but we put it out and called 999. It was like a scene from Reservoir Dogs. Someone dead, blood everywhere and petrol sprayed around. Another worker said that one of the hostages came out of the building with his blood-stained hands still tied, screaming, he's dead, he's dead. On October the 20th, 2008, Robert Carter had woken up at 4am, unable to sleep. He'd gone downstairs to watch a film and drink coffee, before rereading a letter informing him that his house was to be repossessed the following month. He had a wife and a daughter. What was he going to do? He was both scared and angry, and in his mind the blame for his financial problems lay firmly at the door of the recruitment agency which had employed him, Driverline 247. He worked at the Driverline agency from April 2008, but left him a few months later in the August, when the agency deducted £74.75 from Carter's pay, after he had an accident while he was working for them. A disagreement over the money took place between Carter and the company, and he did not work for them for a time. And then on September the 13th, 2008, driver line were again short of drivers, and so the owner, Kingsley Monk, phoned Carter to ask him to drive for them again. Carter agreed he needed the money, but on the provision that they pay him up front. A meeting was arranged to hand over the cash, but the next day, Carter failed to turn up for the job. He was then livid after his daughter heard an answer phone message from the agency owner, Kingsley Monk, calling him a spineless coward when he failed to turn up for this job which he was paid in advance for. Carter believed the agency owed him over £3,000 and this was the key to his financial predicament and why his house was being repossessed. 
This situation couldn't continue and Carter was going to head there and sort this situation out. Just a year before, Carter had appeared before Cardiff Magistrates Court charged with harassing two female train passengers with suggestive text messages and phone calls. Luckily for him, Carter, who was 51 at the time, had a clean record and he'd managed to avoid prison, leaving court with just a suspended prison sentence. That morning, Carter kissed his wife and gave his daughter a big hug before leaving, telling his wife he was off to work. What his wife didn't know was that before he left the house, Carter had filled a bag with jars of petrol, duct tape and cable ties. As he slowly drove towards driver line, he talked himself through the situation he was in, trying to make sense of what he was going to do and what could he do when he got there. He just kept thinking about how, if he got them to give him the money he believed he was owed, this would solve all his problems. He decided to buy petrol, which he thought he could use as a threat, because he knew they would not just give him the money instantly, so he felt that he had to make them give it to him. I know what you're thinking here. As in all areas of life, but especially in true crime, we all know that just by buying petrol, or in other cases taking a gun or a knife, it significantly raises the stakes. And when things do go wrong, this often isn't going to end very well at all. Also on his way to Driverline that morning was Kingsley Monk, the over of Driverline. He was brought up in South Wales with his mum, dad and his older brother. It was a happy, loving childhood with strong family bonds. When he left school, he started an apprenticeship in the printing trade. And in 1984, he met his wife Deborah and the pair married three years later in 1987. Four years later, they had their first son, Rhys, and Matthew arrived three years later. His dad, Roy Monk, described his son as a self-made man who could turn his hand to almost anything. This proved to be correct, as despite spending a long time in the printing industry, he established Driverline at the turn of the century after being made redundant as the downturn in the print industry continued. In 1994, he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he endured a number of treatments including an operation, two rounds of chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant. He was given just a 30% chance of survival, but he always said he had to survive as he had too much to live for and he had to be there for his sons who were then aged five and two. Following this horrible experience, he gave support to other patients, contributing money to the Royal Gwent Hospital via Bargo Golf Club where he was a member. He was a really keen golfer. Fast forward to the day we're talking about in October 2008. Kingsley was 45 and loving life. He lived with Deborah, his wife, and two sons, now aged 17 and 14. Kingsley had launched a driverline business to recruit temp and permanent commercial drivers for companies such as bakeries, dairies and frozen food companies. He was rightly proud of what he'd achieved in his business and also being able to employ local people in the community. When Carter arrived at the business park where Driverline was based, nobody was around, so he sat and waited. As he waited, he hoped that the owner of the recruitment agency, Kingsley Monk, would be the first to arrive, as Carter thought he was the one who could authorise the payment he needed. First to arrive at 8.50 was Gethin Hill, a member of staff. Carter followed him upstairs to the office, pointed a gun at him and said, Do as you're told or I'll kill you. Pointing the gun to his head, Carter tied cable ties around Gethin's wrists and ankles and put duct tape over his mouth before shutting him in the toilet. In a desperate attempt to raise the alarm, 
Gethin dialed 999 on his mobile phone and, unable to speak, he put it in his shirt pocket, hoping that responders would hear what was going on. But Carter heard the voice on the other end of the phone from the other room and disconnected the phone, threatening to kill him if he tried to escape again. Later at 9.10am, Nathan Taylor and Robert Lewis arrived at Driverline together. As they entered the offices, Carter came at them holding a gun and threw petrol in their faces. He then held a lit cigarette lighter and said he would burn them. Carter then gagged the men, tied their hands and their feet with cable ties and made them lie on the floor while he took their mobile phones. Then when the boss, Kingsley Monk, did arrive, he was taken into the main office, away from the other office where the three members of staff were tied up. The men heard Kingsley arrive in the other room and they heard Carter shouting at him that he was owed £3,000. Next, they heard a thud and groans. Robert Lewis managed to break free from his restraints and tried to overpower Carter, but Carter hit him, stamped on his head and tied him up again. Demanding money, Carter forced Nathan Taylor to transfer 2500 into his bank account. Determined to deflect attention from himself and cover his tracks, Carter instructed him to make a series of transactions to other drivers' accounts, totalling 7500 before taking him back out of the room. Gethin and the others could then hear his boss being attacked. He said, Kingsley was screaming for us to help him. It sounded like he was being pushed about, banged against a wall. I heard a scream from Kingsley. The sounds were haunting, it was terrible. I've never heard anything like that before. The men heard more groans and a muffled sound like someone struggling with a plastic bag and they could hear Kingsley pleading, no, no. Then there was a struggle, heavy breathing and a dozen deep breaths. Then silence. What they'd heard was Carter repeatedly kicking and punching Kingsley Monk with a piece of pipe before murdering him by strangling him with his own tie. The three terrified members of staff were unable to help their boss Kingsley and they were petrified about what was going to happen to them. Carter was wearing surgical gloves at the office so he didn't leave fingerprints but he made no attempt to hide his identity and he doused the office in accelerant and then set fire to the building before leaving. After he'd gone, Nathan Taylor and Gethin Hill managed to free themselves and they called 999 as the occupants of the unit next door came in to see what was happening. Nathan told the operator at 1.37pm, he's not breathing, he's bleeding from all over his body. One man is unconscious, the other is gone, he's dead, he's been strangled. Alan Stiles was in the office next door when he noticed smoke billowing into his premises. He went to the offices of driver line and he found Kingsley Monk tied up with three other men. He managed to extinguish a fire and free the other men, but said there was nothing at all he could do for Kingsley. I was working and we saw the smoke, he said. One of them then came running into my place with his hands tied, so I ran into the unit next door. I could see the fire was really bad, so I ran back to my place to get a fire extinguisher. Kingsley's body was on the landing, so I stepped over that to extinguish the fire. Although the fire was quite big, it went out quickly, he said. Kingsley was already dead. He was dead and his tie was tied tightly round his neck. He'd been gagged with a surgical glove and his hands were tied behind his back. I tried to resuscitate him, but he'd been dead for too long. And the official cause of death for Kingsley was later confirmed as pressure to the neck. They, the three other men, had all been tied up. 
I had to cut the men free because they'd been tied with cable ties and they were quite tight. One of the men was just in shock, jumping around, and one of the others was face down with his hands behind his back. There was blood everywhere. After leaving the offices of Driverline, Carter went to Tesco in St Mellon's Cardiff and was captured on CCTV buying shoes, shirts and trousers. He then made his way back to his home in Rumney, Cardiff, where his wife asked him what was wrong. He denied there was anything wrong at all and asked her if they needed to go to the store to get anything, to which she replied they needed some rice. So Carter calmly drove her to the store to buy the rice and while they were out they also spent £8 on knickknacks for his upcoming daughter's birthday party to make little baggies for the children to take home with them. But as they drove back to the house they saw police everywhere. Carter quickly got out of the car and sent his wife on, telling her the police might be looking for him. When his wife asked what was wrong, he said, the less you know, the better for you, before fleeing on foot. He was right, they were after him. However, detectives targeted the wrong house, where 38-year-old Simon Clement was sitting down cuddling his 18-month-old son Joseph, when officers in flak jackets burst in. Wow, imagine that. The father of six watched in horror as he told them that Carter didn't live there, he lived next door. Carter sent a text message at 5.40pm to a friend saying he was in trouble and needed help. He also telephoned a neighbour who noted he sounded panicked. He told her that the police were looking for him and asked if he could come to her house for a few hours and also see if she could get into his house and get his passport, but she refused. Carter caught a bus into Cardiff city centre before catching another one to Newport. Armed police officers spotted Carter at Newport Central train station at about 8.40pm. They challenged Carter, who was on the phone, and told him to put his hands above his head and arrested him. As he was being arrested, Carter said, You should have just shot me and just killed me, got it over with. I was on the phone to an inspector and was going to hand myself in. South Wales Police Negotiator, Chief Inspector Keith Brosser, left an answer phone message for Carter at 5.59pm asking him to contact police. At 8.35pm, Chief Inspector Prosser received a call on his mobile phone from withheld number and asked who it was. The caller replied, Leon Carter. Before they could speak further, Chief Inspector Prosser then heard shouts from another voice saying, put the phone down now, before the line went dead. The police arrested and charged Carter. While on remand, Carter told police officers he swallowed staples, cut his wrists and had suicidal thoughts because he felt he'd failed his family. Well, he had failed his family. At his trial, which took place at Newport Crown Court, Carter denied murdering Kingsley Monk and attempting to murder the other three driverline employees. The prosecution claimed that he'd never had any intention of leaving the witnesses alive. He subjected the men to a prolonged and terrifying attack which lasted four hours and before he left, spread an accelerant around and then igniting it. The prosecution argued this was an attempt to destroy all trace of anything that could identify him and to kill the men who knew him and knew his name. They argued this is why Carter returned home to his family and took them shopping. He believed he'd got away with it, he was safe, and none of the men were left alive to identify him. Carter's defence was to admit killing Kingsley Monk, but to claim it was manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. His chaotic upbringing his birth in Britain and the greater part of his childhood in the US were highlighted, as was a period spent in hospital for mental health problems as a child. 
One psychiatrist said that Carter suffered from paranoid and antisocial personality disorders. He'd been given a tentative diagnosis when he was just nine years old at a US psychiatric hospital after stealing and starting fires. His troubled childhood included regular beatings from his mother, said the psychiatrist, adding that the early psychiatric assessment was valuable because of its closeness to these offences. But another forensic psychiatrist said that Carter was uncooperative during his assessment, failing to answer questions. He said that Carter's actions were not impulsive. Rather, he had clearly planned to get the £3,000 he thought he was owed by Kingsley Monk for lorry driving work. More evidence for his clarity of thought was his bid to cover his tracks by disposing of the blood-stained clothing and the handgun used to threaten the men, which police never recovered. The jury dismissed any suggestion that Carter hadn't been fully in control of his actions, and after a three-week trial, they returned their verdict. Guilty of murder. Sentencing. Recorder of Cardiff, Judge Nicholas Cook QC, told Carter, These crimes or acts of callous wickedness, cruelty and inhumanity which beggar belief. The murder was frenzied and horrific. You terrorised Mr Monk before killing him. Your intention was to kill, and you killed. Addressing the attempted murders of the other men, the judge said, Here your intention was evil. The fate you meant for these three men was horrific. It showed your unfeeling cruelty. You wanted them to die, either being burnt alive, or by asphyxiation as they lay bound and helpless. Whatever your grievance with Mr Monk, these men had done you no conceivable harm. That you intended so terrible an end to those who had done you no harm identifies you as both extremely dangerous and thoroughly bad. After returning its verdicts, the jury, all 12 of whom were in court to hear the sentencing, were told that Carter committed a violent bank robbery in the US before he returned to Britain and killed Kingsley Monk. But because no formal agreement exists to alert the UK of his criminal past, the authorities here did not know, until the trial, that he'd actually been convicted in the US of other crimes. It meant that Carter was able to work as a lorry driver while in breach of parole in the US after serving part of a 20-year jail term there. Carter, who delayed proceedings for an hour because he said he could not summon the dignity required, remained impassive throughout, as the judge sentenced him to 25 years for the attempted murders and 10 years for false imprisonment, to run concurrently with his sentence for the murder. He acknowledged that Carter would probably die in prison. The jury then heard for the first time more details about Carter, who had dual US-UK citizenship, and his crimes on the other side of the pond. On September 3rd, 1985, Carter held up a bank in Bakersfield, California, wielding a toy gun. On that occasion, Carter, who was then 29, had a female accomplice. He had pre-planned the robbery of her down to the minutest detail. He had planned to tie up bank staff and use torn-up bedsheets to gag them. These items were all taken into the bank by Carter in a black attaché case. Bank staff were overpowered and tied up as planned, and more than $8,000 was stolen. Before leaving his female accomplice injected two women's staff with a potassium hydroxide solution. Carter, as we've seen, isn't very good at crime and he was caught within hours. He stood trial, was found guilty and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Carter also had a conviction for first-degree aggravated robbery using a shotgun in Utah in 1979 
This related to an attack on two men who'd been sleeping in the car. Judge Cook frequently stopped the barrister to give a fuller explanation to the jury. He told them that the police were unaware of Carter's convictions when they were carrying out their investigations. He comes to the UK as a parole breaker from the USA, the judge said. He asked the barrister when the British authorities discovered that Carter, who lived in the US from the age of five, was a parole breaker, and he was told that it was only after the trial got underway that it was possible to confirm the details with the American authorities. Before then, the authorities here did not have knowledge that a parole breaker from the US, who committed two serious offences, was in our midst, the judge explained to the jury. Disturbingly, the case has echoes of another high-profile murder committed in the UK by a criminal with a violent past on the other side of the Atlantic. If you recall, in 1996, American bodybuilder David Bieber fled Florida with a fake passport after being implicated in the murder of his wife's lover. Seven years later, he shot and fatally wounded PC in Broadhurst in Leeds. When Bieber married a British woman in March 1997, weeks before his six-month tourist visa was due to expire, Home Office checks on his background failed to spot that his pseudonym, Nathan Coleman, belonged to a boy who had died decades earlier. Kingsley Monk's widow, Deborah, sat in court sobbing as her impact statement was read to the court. She told of the daily struggle that she and her sons, Matthew and Reese have to keep going every day. She described the murder of her husband as vicious and sadistic beyond belief. It's true what they say, that you do not know what you have until it's gone, she said. I cry myself to sleep every night. The evening and the night is when I miss Kingsley the most. It's like having an open wound that will never heal. He's the first thing I think of in the morning and the last thing at night. When I go to bed at night, I close my eyes and I see Kingsley tied up. I just cannot believe that he's not coming back. I ask myself how can he go to work as normal and then just not come home. Others involved in the ordeal also suffered. One of the workers at Driverline we spoke about, Robert Lewis, he had a plastic bag pulled over his face and was coshed with a metal bar when he tried to help his boss Kingsley. It's never far from his mind that he's probably only alive today as Carter chose the wrong chemical as an accelerant for the blaze as he left the premises. Robert is a grandfather of two and he talked about a turbulent year of police statements, counselling and an operation to fix his injured jaw. But he said with the help and support of his family and friends he's attempting to get some normality back in his life. He said, The physical injuries I've overcome but the psychological effect will be with me for the rest of my life. It's not something I'm ever going to forget. He said he thinks about the incident almost every day and small things like seeing a stranger in the street often triggers thoughts about Carter. He said he had trouble sleeping and was unable to return to work for four months after the ordeal because he was still receiving treatment for headaches caused by the injuries he received during the incidents. And in January, the father of two was dealt another blow when he was made redundant from driverline because the company was losing money. And I haven't really considered this before, have you? How does a small company cope when the, when the charismatic leader is murdered? Robert has now found an, another role, but to be made redundant as well. Goodness me, it must have been so hard for him. So today's episode, again, it's been a, I think it's been a really disturbing case. I've spoken before about how some killers, especially serial killers, develop an almost cult following and they're almost admired. 
I think that Kingsley's widow, Deborah, in her words, exposes this as being just pathetic, and it is pathetic. She spoke, I think, really clearly about the reality of dealing with murder, saying, Now all we have left is photos and memories. I don't have the luxury of falling to pieces. I have to be strong for the boys. She said that Matthew, who Kingsley affectionately called Mini-Me because of their close resemblance, missed his father terribly. But she said that no 13-year-old son should have to deal with this type of situation. And also that Kingsley never got to see his son Reese pass his driving test or see his 18th birthday. She said, I'd like to think that Kingsley has gone to a better place, but I know he was in a good place with his loving family and Russell Carter has taken that away. Kingsley's dad, Roy, said, His death has totally devastated this family and our lives will never be the same again. I've not only lost my son but my best friend too. And his mother will go to her grave a broken woman. And as you know, this is the reality of true crime. It's the people that are left behind. As for Carter, he's one of the few people we've covered in this podcast for whom I feel absolutely no sympathy at all. But I do feel for his wife and his daughter, especially his daughter. Now, will she stay in contact with her father in jail till he dies? And what will the consequences be for her if she does, or for that matter, if she doesn't? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK Weekly True Crime Podcast. If you'd like to support the show further, please head to our Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UK True Crime. Some good stuff up there, bonus episodes, videos behind the scenes. Have a look, see what you think. But that's all for me for now this week. So until we speak again next week, cheerio.